Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to talk about gold. Gold. Not just in isolation. Gold, buy, hold, inflation, deflation, uh, audit the Fed, conspiracy. No, no. We're going to talk about gold, how it fits within the monetary, the shadow system. Where does it fit in the euro dollar framework? And what does it have in common with treasury bill yields, the Federal Reserve's reverse repo program holdings, and early morning repo collateral scrambles but first ladies and gentlemen if this show was sponsored a potential sponsor might be youtube where you could find all manner of cat videos but also on august 3rd you will be able to watch and commemorate the 14th anniversary of the oracle of cnbc losing his mud on squawk box yes jim kramer august 3rd 2007 came on and was absolutely apoplectic talking about how the federal reserve is out to lunch and their people are losing their jobs and firms are going to go out of business and it's nuts and they have the federal reserve has no idea what it's out like there and screaming and it's wonderful we haven't seen anything like it since bill o'reilly lost his mind on inside edition you remember that and he said he was going to do it live well ladies and gentlemen it turned out that a few days later, the FOMC met and they laughed at Kramer on August 7th, 2007. Jeff Snyder, head of global research for Alhambra Partners. What other memorable comment was made on August 7th, 2007? I think there were quite a few, actually, although I'm not sure how many people are aware of them or how how they probably don't realize how memorable they were. But to me, the most famous from August 7th, 2007, and again, this was, a, this was one of those emergency FOMC conf, uh, conference calls where they got together and said, well, there's a lot of chatter out there. Things are going on. What are you guys hearing? Because we don't see anything wrong here. And at the time, a guy by the name of Bill Dudley happened to be the open market desk manager, which is probably the Fed's most important position inside of the Federal Reserve. I mean, the chairman gets all the attention and really that's kind of the point. Everybody looks at the chairman and gets a, you know, Ben Bernanke and his persona. But as far as the function of monetary policy, the open market desk, the system open market desk manager is kind of the, the go-to person when it comes to the nuts and bolts of these things. And that was Bill Dudley back in August, 2007. And he said, I've talked to people on the street. Ha, there's nothing going on. We don't see anything imminent anywhere. I'm talking commercial paper, countrywide, mortgages, all of this stuff. Nothing in, nothing is imminent. And, as and a, how many days later after that meeting did the crisis begin? Two. Exactly two days. Two days later, not only was the crisis imminent, it was there. Wham. And as, as we talked, I mean, you know, Northern Rock CEO put it best. The, the world just froze or, the you know, everything just stopped on August 9th. And here are these geniuses, these monetary wise, monetary stewards on August 7th saying, there's nothing imminent. And, I, I, and the funny thing about it was what made this quote memorable, even more memorable in my mind than Ben Bernanke's subprime contained the, the fiasco, was that Bill Dudley identified several things that he said were not imminent. There was no trouble imminent. And among them was commercial paper. So nothing imminent in commercial paper when two days later, the commercial paper market, as we know it, ceased to exist. <laughs> so that's that's pretty much how good these people are in the internals of monetary policy. I mean, this one goes in the Hall of Fame of worst possible takes. 
what they should have been doing is looking into the shadows, into the monetary system. Now, you can't look into it directly. You can't measure it directly because it's, it's in the shadows. We have to measure the monetary system's impact on other things that are visible and then interpret what that might mean. And over the last several weeks, we've been talking about U.S. Treasury bill yields, the uh, level of the Federal Reserve's reverse repo program, the holdings, and then also collateral scrambles very early in the morning in the repo market. And in your article called Golden Collateral Checking that was posted on the 26th of July at Alhambra Partners, you bring a fourth measure into the discussion that we want to keep an eye on. And I think people would be very surprised that it's the ancient metal when we're talking about the modern monetary system. Tell us a little bit why gold. Yeah, it's not only just the ancient, you know, the, what used to be money, actual money was, you know, physical metal. Nowadays, we use the, the term money loosely on pretty much anything, which, you know, I guess, you know, defines the era that we've gone through, the Eurodollar era, where the, where the, where the, we've blurred the lines and definitions of money itself. But, you know, I think people are surprised, number one, that gold can kind of get caught up in this mess. Number two, in the ways in which it does get caught up in this mess, right? Because when we see these telltale signs of scramble for collateral, collateral shortage, whatever you want to call it, you know, it ends up being negative for gold. Gold gets sold. It gets pounded. It gets slammed. You know, go back to last March. You and I talked about this a lot since you're, you know, you're in the precious metal business. You know this very well. On these same mornings where we see these liquidations happen, before the liquidations happen, during this repo window, as I call it, you know, the early morning session, really up until about 9, 30, 10 o'clock in the morning, most of the activity gets done up until the U.S. open, and then there's a little bit little bit um, scrambling scramble up until around, say, 9, 30, 10 o'clock. But you would see T-bill rates just sink. They would just drop. And it was clear that there was so so much enormous demand over and above investment considerations for treasury bills. And you could match intraday in these, these overnight sessions T-bill rates with gold prices. And they would go tick for tick with each other. And even if, if you didn't have any idea what was really going on here, you would say, I mean, this is a correlation we can't just ignore. It's there and it's there repeatedly. So something is going on that links these gold slams, these early morning gold slams with what's going on in treasury bills. And then, of course, when we get to the regular trading session, everything gets liquidated, including stocks and everything else that had been beforehand pretty much impermeable to any kind of negative factors. So we got all we got a progression, a series of events that are all correlated together that don't that, that all look at uh, the, the entire system as it's breaking down and, and telling you, as you pointed out, you know, we're using these what's going on in these visible indications to piece together what must actually be happening in the shadows. And gold was very much a part of that. And gold slams, the way you look at it, is those early morning sales. Now, Jeff, that's of course perfectly correct but you know what i did i did a, a look myself and my gold slam definition is a bit, little bit looser a little bit more liberal than yours well, and hey, it, as we said last week there's this is there's terms of art here we don't have yeah. you know we don't have precision we don't have you know equations we're, we're not we don't we're not fooling ourselves like economists putting up an econometric you know regressions and telling you that we have you know a precision to the seventh decimal point <laughs> there's a lot of art here. There's a lot of uh, 
you know, analysis and opinion. And you know what? Maybe I even said it wrong that it's the wrong, I have a looser definition. I would maybe this is kind no, of a different vintage or a different yeah. fractal, you know, a time. There's the time, the short ones that you're talking about. But I'd like to draw attention of the dear audience to a little bit longer slams that do also correspond to another kind of collateral sale. And so the graph that I've pulled up right now is the gold price. That's the gold line. And then the little bars, the area graph at the bottom, that represents U.S. Treasuries, but custody holdings by the Federal Reserve for foreign official and international accounts. Jeff, you'll do a much better job explaining that. Can you just tell the audience what these things are and why they're important? U.S. Treasuries in custody. That is the uh, reserve managers around the world who, as you know, the euro dollar system developed and, and threw off all of these dollar resources into various countries. A lot of those dollar liabilities or dollar assets got in, became into the hands of foreign official uh, institutions, whether they be central banks or foreign treasuries or something like that. And as an accommodation to help out foreign governments around the world, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York custodies those U.S. Treasury assets on their behalf. So it actually acts, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York actually acts as custodian for these uh, Treasury accounts. And there's not just Treasury, there's other assets too, but we're, we're specifically dealing with Treasuries here. And if you, if you graphed the absolute value of those, what you see is they rise rapidly during the, the Euro dollar mania era up until the first financial crisis. And then we get into the post 2008 period, it gets a little strange where we see the level of treasuries in custody at Federal Reserve Bank of New York on behalf of foreign officials tends to decline when we see these other kinds of, of indications of a dollar shortage. And so it, it goes together with the tick data in that, and this is separate from tick. It goes together in the data, the tick data where it says treasuries tend to disappear from foreign hands when there's a dollar shortage. And that kind of makes sense. Either they're being used in some other compassion, lent another in some other fashion being lent out to other other uh, local banks that are starved for dollars or just sold outright liquidated to raise cash to pay off euro dollar uh, euro dollar um, liabilities so here we have and I, I love how you did you've gone all the way back to 2011 Emil to show that this is not just last March this is something that we can we can look at dependably where gold is definitely part of this mix where we can say look here we have a couple different indications from very different sources, one real-time data and market prices, another one, a custody account of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. We put those two things together and it's there's a collateral dollar shortage indicated in both of these things. And it's very consistent going back more than a decade. That's right. Exactly. So you would notice these things should be rising if the monetary system is expanding, custody holdings. We see sales rarely and consistent sales or sales in bulk in volume that's during these dollar shortages and look at what we see with the gold price which i've circled here significant falls that's just 2011 here's from 2014 jeff again sudden sales in custody and then drops in the gold uh, material drops in the gold price over several weeks that's not only it in 2014, we saw it in 2015 as well. And as you were just mentioning earlier, 2020 as well. Yeah, we have, you know, we can go back to all those, you know, back to 2011, for example. 
you know, the graph that you showed there, where did those treasuries start to disappear from the, the, the custody account? In August of 2011, what happened in August of 2011? Well, August 9th, 2011, there was another one of those emergency conference calls on the Federal Reserve where they said, we can't believe what's happening here. We've got 1.6 trillion in bank reserves, and yet we're talking about bailing out the repo market because illiquidity is so, I mean, TAF auctions and overseas, we need to go back into crisis mode, even though we've quote unquote printed 1.6 trillion in bank reserves. And that correlates, so we have, we have a very consistent correlated story that links gold, the custodies and treasuries to tick, to T-bill yields, and even FOMC discussions talking about illiquidity deep inside these markets. And I want to go back to, you know, Emil, something you said earlier, okay. you know, the visible, the visible spectrum of dollar shortages. Mm. It's not something the Fed didn't know about. Going back to 2007, even in those discussions in 2007, you know, Bill Dudley would say, there's, you know, there's weird stuff going on in the euro dollar futures market. It's inverted. They would notice this stuff and then say, nah, no big deal. That's, there's just a lack of somebody on the other side willing to take the trade and move the curve back to where it is, not realizing what they were actually saying. The reason nobody was on the other side taking that trade was because they agreed with it, right? If you actually think there's not there's not really much money in taking the other side of an inverted curve, then you agree with what the inverted curve is, that there's a probability of something bad, and therefore you do not want to be long into a big crisis. So what happened was, they did what we did. They're looking at these markets and saying, we're seeing these things move, but then sort of getting into this, this mode of denial where well, that can't possibly be true. We're the Fed. If we want to do what we want to do, we're going to do it. Nobody, you'll fight us. And here we had an, almost a year period where the markets were saying, sure, you guys are the Fed, but we don't believe you're going to get this right. And that, that repeated in 2011 and again and again and again. I think part of the reason for this latter point, Jeff, is because the Fed is so staffed with academics, which are perfectly yeah. fine people. Sounds like a wonderful life to be an academic. But I think you need more people from Wall Street who have had their rear sector handed to them by the market so that you have some humility knowing this market is telling me something and it's important for me to pay attention to it. Whereas if you're an academic, you're highly credentialed, you're acclaimed, you're in the citadel of monetary power. Why should you listen to markets? Who's right? You? Yeah, not the markets. So I think that's a big problem is this, well, like, I guess it's yeah, a, no, the, ivory the, tower, further, the ivory take tower. Take that a little bit, take that a step further, Emil, and it's, it's, it's even more correct, if, for lack of a better term, because the academics focus on something else entirely. Academic economists, and you're right, that's what that's the people at the Federal Reserve or any central bank, they're academic economists. And what they focus on is mathematics. Mm -hmm. And not the mathematics of money, but the mathematics of these DSGE e econometric nice. models describing, okay, what's the relationship between inflation and unemployment? Or, or you know, what is the multiplier factor for a fiscal stimulus package? There's no real place for the, in those models for actual money. They just kind of assume, and they have assumed for a long time, they don't need to model money because the Federal Reserve gets what the Federal Reserve wants. And so why waste your time and, and brain power trying to come up with a model for a monetary system that you're convinced simply obeys monetary policy inputs? And so the academic economists start from a premise, the worst possible premise, 
which is they don't need to pay attention at all to any of these things. So when Bill Dudley's talking about inverted curves and euro dollar futures, they're like, so what? That's not even in my model. My model is the world, it's the universe. So yeah, so that point you just made is, yes, that's the biggest problem here is because the people, and the irony is the people who are running the supposedly monetary center of the universe don't care about money at all. It's not even in their models. And that's, it's, it's kind of one of the, one of the, one of the weird ways that you can explain how things got to be the way they are in a sort of very granular way. When you look at Bill Dudley talking about these things and then all those the people around the table going, eh, no big deal. And then two days later, everything breaks down and they're all shocked and can't believe it. It actually does make sense. It, it's, it's not just some kind of Hollywood story, you know, really bad Hollywood script that got thrown out for being so un, unbelievably implausible. It actually happened that way. Ladies and gentlemen, if you want to know more about the Federal Reserve, which I'd love to keep talking about, I've got several points I, I want to raise, but we're here to talk about gold. Then go to episode 92, where we spent 95 minutes reviewing the last 14 years of Fed actions through the lens of a recent frontline documentary. All right, Jeff, I'm going to pull up your graphs now, where you've got gold and you've got U.S. Treasury nominal and real yields. And just tell us what you're seeing and I guess why you wrote this article. Well, normally there's a really good inverse correlation between gold and the treasury market. And then we're going back a couple of years to 2018. It's almost perfect. And you can see it visually. I mean, it's, it's a straight, it's almost makes a perfect X here. And even in, you know, I love how you brought in self-similarity and invariance to scale. It's not just a perfect X in the law in the, you know, the big time scale. There's also, you know, smaller, perfect inverse, inverse correlations over shorter time periods. And what I mean, and that makes intuitive sense too, even though it doesn't necessarily from the mainstream perspective, which holds that gold is nothing more than an inflation hedge. And that's not really true. It's actually a very poor inflation hedge. You know, you go back to the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, gold, gold performed poorly against the CPI. What gold is, is a, is a hedge against big errors. And the runaway inflation of the 1970s actually qualifies as one of the biggest errors in money and economics. So that's why gold performed well during the, the 1970s, once it was allowed to float in price, even though it had there was a two-tier pricing back to the 60s. So it sort of had broken away from the earliest day of the, of the great inflation. So it's, it's a big error hedge. But a big error doesn't necessarily mean runaway inflation. It could also mean deflation and fragmentation and, and monetary uncertainty, as we've seen since 2018 because the big risks going back to especially november october november december 2018 have absolutely not been runaway inflation even though that's what they've all said in the mainstream media instead we've seen inflation go down the economy uh, slump globally and yet gold prices were rising often precipitously as bond yields were falling so we have deflationary signal in bonds what's going on in gold well the same thing and it makes sense because, you know, gold's primary, the primary argument against holding gold is it doesn't pay any interest. How, so the opportunity cost to holding gold is, is essentially risk-free interest rates. So if you think risk-free interest rates are going lower and going to stay lower, the opportunity cost of holding gold goes way, way down. Therefore, that, that, that lends some more value and bid to the gold price. So that's why you can see this inverse correlation between treasury yields and gold prices, deflationary error signals. 
And so you raise a few dates in your report. You raise, let's see, what dates are they? Uh, June 30th, July 1st, and July 15th. And why did you bring those dates to our attention with respect well, to gold? Just, on the chart, that I, you know, the part that I had circled, which was recently, it's kind of a, you know, it's our correlation broke there. Because as you can see on the, the right part of the chart, since since middle of March, Treasury yields have fallen, as well as yield, real yields have fallen, but, you know, maybe not as, as consistently. So there's an argument there. But anyway, nominal Treasury yields have fallen since March, and gold was moving up, in, as you would expect, given lower yields. Then around the end of May, suddenly gold began to fall, even though Treasury nominal yields were falling, too. So we broke our correlation there for about a five-week period in a pretty, you know, pretty severe way. Not the first time, but you know, it's one of those things that you go, okay, what's going on in gold here? And it, it's the uh, the the decline in gold prices ended on June 30th, and you saw it go back up in early July, up until July 15th. And now gold prices are kind of sideways to lower since July 15th. And these dates show up in the Treasury bill market. So we're kind of wondering here, are we seeing, like you, had, like you had shown before, historically, are we seeing a larger scale gold price decline that is indicative of collateral pressures? Because we saw those in T-bills during the same period. May, late May and June, quite a bit of these instances of scramble for collateral, indications of shortage, rising levels in the reversed repo rate, which is an indirect indication of collateral scarcity, and all of a sudden now we have golds falling against falling treasury bills, or and treasury this, yields, I'm sorry. Exact, one above it. Oh, you want to see that one too? Okay, no problem. The, the bill one. There it is. So you can see, you know, May up until July 1st, treasury bills are giving you that signal. There's excess demand for collateral, which is consistent with lower gold prices. And then that middle part of July, or the first part of July, July till around here, it says July 21st. Other secondary pricing models say July 15th, which is exactly when you saw the recent high in gold. So that it kind of correlates too. So you have to wonder, are we seeing these collateral pressures play out in the, in the breakdown in the correlation of gold over the last you know couple of months or so? And the reverse repo program held by the Fed, which we've talked about on previous episodes, we believe it's several signals, one of which is there's a collateral squeeze shortage that is not being satisfied by the private market. So they're going to the Fed. And as you draw out in your uh, graph here in this article, you know, hey, it started to rise again. We hit a peak, settled down. It's rising again. Which, again, matches both T-bill rates and their behavior, as well as what happened short run in gold. Right. Because we had that May to the end of June, we have rising RRP levels the same time falling gold. And then the first couple of weeks in June, all of those things kind of backed off. Gold rose, T-bill rates started to behave better, and even lower balances in the RRP. But in the second half of July, gold isn't exactly, I mean, it's been lower in some days. It's sort of, it's been up over the last couple, so it's kind of sideways. So nothing real definitive there, but it's not higher like it should be as U.S. Treasury nominal yields are falling and real yields have been sinking. So you would think that gold, sideways in a way is 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 already sort of a red flag because gold prices really should be rising much more rapidly given what's going on in, in, in the behavior of yields so we're wondering are we seeing a consistent signal here 
where RRP, treasury bills, starting to misbehave again, lower nominal long-term yields, and gold prices that are at least not rising like they might otherwise. Jeff, I'm going to ask you to summarize this article if you have any further thoughts. But before I do, I want to go back to the custody holdings of U.S. Treasuries by the Fed of treasuries for you know foreign institutions and bring us up to date and i think you'll be very interested by this graph here i'm going to pull it up right now so this is from the fred site and it goes all the way back to 2017 and let's say that was at the end of 2016 was when we had our last euro dollar crisis number three the asian one kind of stop and what did we see we saw custody holdings start to rise as we would expect in a reflationary expansionary uh monetary order it peaked in early 2018 again Alarm perfect bells. Yeah, I mean, perfect fits a lot, everything we need to talk about yeah uh, look at that and then we see the landmine even in this memorandum item in a balance sheet of the fed we can see the monetary system and then in Oct because in october we started to see a serious decline a recovery to the beginning of the year in 2019 and then from early 2019 all the way through the end of the year we see a decrease warning 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 and come the corona big drop then a recovery, a recovery during the reflation. Jeff, looking at the farthest, the right side, what do we see? We saw a peak and now a steady decline. Yeah, where was that peak, Emil? You will not right on be surprised. March, March 18th. <laughs> Coincidence, <laughs> Jeff Snyder? No, we don't believe in coincidence. Well, we do if it's you know, one thing correlates with another occasionally, that's a coincidence. But when you have, and to summarize what we're talking about here, Thank you. And, you know, this is a memo item in the Fed's data. It's not something those people even as aware exist. But what we're doing here is, because, as you've laid out beautifully at the beginning here, we're trying to look at what goes on in the this, this system we cannot directly observe. And so we have to piece together all of these behavioral changes. Does this change with this correspond with this? Does this correspond with that? And when you start fitting together very different pieces of data with real-time market prices, and it's one after another, after another, after another, that cannot be random coincidence. What we do here, I mean, because this is all publicly available information. We're not making this information up. You can all look at this. You can go to and look at everything we're talking about. All we're doing is trying to give people a sense of how to interpret these correlations that cannot be random. What is it that we think is going on that explains all these things? And what you'll find is it's nothing like what they say in the media or the textbooks or what comes out of Jay Powell's mouth, except for the occasional accidental truths that he spilled like he did to Congress when he said, not a lot of T-bills. So by and large, what we're doing is putting together the pieces, you know, and even finding different pieces that fit into what is a consistent, coherent picture of what we believe is monetary reality, which then becomes financial reality and eventually economic reality, which does impact everyone's daily life, whether they know it or not. In part two of this episode, we're going to talk about the Asian financial crisis and foreigners selling U.S. treasuries. What does that have to do with our current economic recovery? You're going to want to know. Treasury bill yields. 
the reverse repo program holdings, early morning repo market collateral scrambles, and now gold. What do all these things have in common? They're warning something is happening, at least in those first three. And the question is, is it happening in the fourth one as well? Gold, we're going to talk about it. Gold, gold, gold. Terrible. I can't do it. I'm not going to do that one over again. I, <laughs> I thought that was good. What, yeah, I, I don't know. What, I'm Take two. Take two. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to talk about gold. Gold. Foreigners are selling U.S. treasuries. Why? Is it because they don't like the way the government is spending its money? Is it a sign of some geopolitical intrigue? What does the Asian financial crisis of the late 1990s have to do with it all? We're going to talk about all of that next. But first, ladies and gentlemen, if this was a professional show, what we would do right now is we would segue to a very fancy video graphic with people maniacally ringing the stock exchange bell, ticker symbols going rapidly across the bottom, and then we would have pictures of birds like hawks and doves and ostriches and peacocks and then and then to rope the men in we would have ladies jumping on trampolines and then we would cut to a scowling jay powell to rope in the ladies we would have gentlemen in speedos jumping on a trampoline and then we would cut to a bemused U.S. Treasury Secretary Yellen face. And then finally, we would have uh, an announcer with a deep voice come on and say something compelling with fireworks and lasers. And then at the end, an explosion. And then we would fade back in to me throwing it to the head of global research for Alhambra Partners. And I would say he's broadcasting deep from within the shadows of the monetary system, Jeff Snyder. So I want you all to imagine that that's what happened. Jeff? Welcome to I the don't show. think I want any of that, Emil. I think I'm I'm more than happy with you describing it and painting that picture because I think it's it's so much better than you know cheesy B-roll graphics going across. I think your expressions and the way you sell it are far superior to uh, expensive graphics. And I'm saying that as you know our our uh, video production department says, yeah, we don't have the budget for any of that. <laughs> we are gonna, ladies and gentlemen. All seriousness, I wrote this at the end. Jeff, this is your best ever explanation of why foreigners are selling U.S. treasuries and why it's not some geopolitical apocalypse or sign of imminent bankruptcy. Ladies and gentlemen, this article is one of the best that Jeff has written on this topic in forever. I think it's fantastic. You're going to want to hear and read it yourself. It's called Yet Another Key Warning Sign, Piece of Strong Evidence, Tick and the long misunderstood history of selling treasuries. That's the key, the long misunderstood history. We're going to talk about it. We're going to start with the Asian financial crisis, which Jeff, you say was a regional dollar shortage that maybe it was a prequel to what would be the global financial crisis. I wouldn't say maybe. I would say that it was in, in every way. I mean, yeah, people can argue with that. all, And I think the reason that there might be any controversy to that making that assertion at all is it starts with a name, right? The Asian financial crisis doesn't sound like regional dollar shortage. I mean, Asia is a region, but it's a financial crisis, right? But when you actually look at the nuts and bolts of what happened, it was a dollar shortage up and down the, that side of the Pacific, even from the very first with Thailand. Thailand started experiencing a massive dollar shortage 
that simply spread like a virus, like the flu. That's why, you know, I like to call it the Asian flu because it spread like a virus from one place to another to another. And most famously, it took down the quote unquote Asian tiger economies like Thailand and, and others associated with it. But really, it got its worst parts took place in Tokyo and in Japan. People don't know that, Jeff. I know. I don't know that. Well, because it, Japan is, you know, the history of Japan is, also, is mostly tied up into earlier in the decade, right? It, Japan was already in a depression. Therefore, what did the Asian financial crisis have to do with Japan? And what happened was, 97-98 in Japan was like 1937 and 1938 was in the United States Great Depression. It was the depression within the depression. When you look at a lot of different accounts in a lot of different ways, 97 and 98 was worse from Japan than it had been in 91 and 92. It was that sort of knockout blow that said, you're down for the count, you're never getting back up. So the Asian financial crisis for Japan was absolutely consequential, and that's where most of the big activity centered around. The 97, yeah, that was the initial Thailand and some of the smaller economies, but when you get into the real big trouble, and this includes the Russian crisis too, that, came, that went along the same way, that was the you know where it really got to be serious and then eventually led to LTCM in the United States. That was the 1998 episode where Japan was in the thick of all of it. Incredible, incredible. I think we could make an analogy to 2008 where everyone thinks it's about the mortgage-backed securities like yeah. they think 98 was about the Indonesia, Thailand, and so forth, when really in 2008, the story was the monetary system, the banks in Lombard and Wall Street. That was the crisis, just like the monetary center in 1998. Japan was the crisis, and you bring out one tangible example for us to hold on to tell us the story about the bank of tokyo mitsubishi and barclays and the spread between the two as signal of how deep in the s japan was <laughs> well i mean we we think of money market rates as single rates and therefore we think the money markets are monolithic there's just Hey, the LIBOR, three months LIBOR is X. And that means everybody's borrowing at X. No, three months, you know, LIBOR like federal funds, the effective federal funds rate, they're an amalgamation. They're a calculation of individual transactions that can take place all over. So what LIBOR is, is an own rate, which is the people back then, the, the, the banks that were participating in the British Bankers Association survey would say, this is what I could borrow unsecured in these interbank euro dollar markets. And for a bank like Barclays, they got you know closer to the average because it's Barclays. It's, it's, there was no British. trouble in 1998. The British part of the you know very well steeped in the euro dollar in the inner workings, so no credit risk, no no material risk whatsoever. However, you know Bank of Mitsubishi Tokyo and some of the other Japanese banks, you know, the, the Bank of Tokyo Mitsubishi, that was a very tiny, out of the way, no one's ever heard of a bank, right, Jeff? Yeah, no. <laughs> that was. That was the not at all. That was it. Not at all. This is this was the the supreme, the the, the creme de la creme of Japanese banks. Okay. What they were saying is, you know, here's this best bank in Japan. What would it be able to borrow over in U in U.S. dollars over LIBOR? And the answer was an enormous. You know, it got up to be 110 or so yes. spread over LIBOR, which is absolutely huge. And this was the best of Japanese banks. So what we know from those spreads alone is that Japanese banks were having an enormous dollar pro or enormous problem securing U.S. dollars in offshore markets. And if now, it was 110 spread for you know BOTM, what was it for 
banks further down the tier, you know, banks, lower credit quality, lower reputational score, those things like that. They were definitely paying some, some ex, you know, some multiple of that premium over LIBOR, which meant really growing, really serious problem with uh, dollar shortage. Now we're going to get to what other banks around the world did and then what that, and then how they were kind of limited in helping Japan. But I want to take a quick tangent because you do in your paper here regarding the Federal Reserve helping Japan. But Jeff, I've got to draw attention to this. This is very unusual. And in my mind, I think if we were to line up all the people in the world in a single line in descending order ranked on number of hours read, FOMC statements read, right? I would say, Jeff, that you would be very, very, very close to the front of that line. And Jeff, in I think all that you... is, is that's kind of a dubious. <laughs> dubious I'm damning you with faint praise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I feel damned. <laughs> and but for our purposes here, this is you are you have read all these statements, Jeff. How frequently do you see? segments of the meeting minutes redacted about very important things like how much did the federal reserve give to japan to help them during this crisis tell this fascinating little nugget morsel i have never run across it again wow to be honest with you so it's 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 extremely rare and when we're talking about redacted amounts never seen it never seen that before and it's it's weird and i know this is you know 25 almost a quarter century ago and it maybe doesn't seem like a big deal but to me, when you're looking, trying to piece together what's going on in the, in the, you know, just the Asian financial crisis and, and seeing what everybody knew about this dollar problem back then, because that was an important issue, as we found out in August of 2007. What we really want to know is how did all, as we talked about in the last segment, how do all of these things fit together? And that's why I read these transcripts, because you don't get, I mean, the mainstream media is no help. Academic papers, forget it. They, they, they're absolutely worthless in these kinds of things. You really have to go to the primary source material and dig through it as, as tedious and as, as unrewarding as that is to listen to these idiots go on and on about things that don't matter. Occasionally, you arrive at something that, that makes you go, okay, I've got something here. This Asian financial crisis... And I don't want to get too much into the details of specifically what's going on here because that'll just take us in a different direction. But by and large, Bank of Japan was having – obviously, they knew their, their, their local banks were having major dollar issues. And they knocked on the door of the Federal Reserve and said, we got to have some help here because our banks are, are really struggling to secure dollars. Give us something. And what they came up with is this sort of quasi-repo swap kind of arrangement – but we have no idea. Those the amounts of those arrangements, the terms of those arrangements, are redacted from the transcript. This is a public transcript that everything is supposed to be made public. And to this day, I, I haven't checked in a couple of years, and maybe the the amounts have magically shown up, but I doubt it. Why were those redacted? And I think the answer is they never want anybody to know just how big of a problem this was. And I think up until the point when this is early 1998, when this is going on, they really thought, well. We can keep this under control and it won't be a big deal. And then when it did become a big deal, they wanted they wanted to keep it under wraps because they didn't want people to know that it was a big deal before it became a big deal. And of course, then it became an even bigger deal a decade later when the whole thing fell apart. So, you know, I don't want to be conspiratorial here. There's obviously some reason. I'm sure they could provide you with a reason. Maybe file a Freedom of Information Access request. I don't know, but it's the only time I've ever seen it amounts redacted. 
which in the context of our discussion here suggests this was serious dollar issues that even the Fed was not willing to share all the details of what they were doing behind the scenes. Then you continue with your story saying that U.S. money dealers did what they were supposed to, charge higher and higher premium to lend, but then did lend happily. But at a certain point, the lenders were prohibited by their risk departments from lending any further. And you offer a quote here from the FOMC statement from uh, Mr. Peter Fisher. And then you point out, okay, a dollar shortage. And, okay, so money dealers offering money, but you're then a dealer, right? You, you offer, you've got free spare cash. You've got dollars. You can create dollars if you want to. You've seen these banks in Japan. They're struggling. Rates that they're being charged, that they're willing to pay, go up and up and up. You're thinking, cha-ching. These guys are paying 110 basis points over LIBOR. Their neighbor's paying 125. <laughs> There's other banks that are willing to pay 200 over LIBOR. I'm going to make my year here. So the lending desks are, I'm going to lend as much as I possibly can because that's my sole job. That's how banks work. The lending desk says, I'm going to lend because these prices are so favorable. I can't make anywhere near this kind of return anywhere else. But other parts of the same banks are going, whoa, 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 pump the brakes here. You can make your bank, but I've got to, I'm responsible for you. And you're getting involved with these banks that are, that are paying way over LIBOR for a reason. There's a reason why the market is saying you have to pay a premium. And we're going we're gonna to rein you in here. You want to lend at even higher spreads, but we're telling you, hold on a second. We need to reassess the situation and see if you can lend. In fact, some of those banks that were lending dollars to their Japanese counterparts were running it up against these pre-existing credit limits that triggered all sorts of these other review processes. And when those review processes were completed, they were like, no, no more lending to Japan. I don't care if it's a 500 basis point spread. These people are dangerous. So as the rate rose, the dollar rates that were being charged to the bank, the, these Japanese banks rose, in the initial part, you know, late 97, early 98, they were still getting the dollars they needed. They were just paying exorbitant premiums to do so. Around April and May of 1998, that's when the review started to get triggered. And all of a sudden, it didn't matter what rate the, the banks were willing to pay. They couldn't secure dollars at, at any price, which, again, that should sound familiar to anybody who's paid attention to August 2007 forward. It didn't matter what rate that went up to, banks got shut out of the dollar markets because of these various reasons, the same kinds of reasons. Dollar shortage. And then the Bank of Japan decided to help the situation out. Now, I don't remember at that particular time there being a lot of stories about the Bank of Japan sending a geopolitical message to the United States that they were <laughs> selling U.S. Treasuries because of some they sort hated of, bill clinton right they were they were upset I, about the I impeachment so. or something yeah I, I think that was it or <laughs> even though they, that was a year later i think <laughs> they were they were upset together. about the fact that clinton was going to be impeached i'm making light of the situation but i shouldn't jeff what did the bank of japan do to save its internal banking system it raised funds how it did what it always did and that's what i was talking about in the title of the article the selling treasuries to pay off euro dollar euro dollar shortages is it's not something that we just see we we talked about it almost exclusively over the last half decade or so because that's when it's become heavy but this is a history and a correlation that goes back into the 1960s and the earliest days of the euro dollar market 
So the Bank of Japan, which had been doing this since the 1960s, when confronted with a local dollar problem at any one of its own banks, or in this case, all of its own banks, <laughs> they started selling tri- – they liquidized, liquidated reserve assets in order to raise funds so that they're, they're, they, could, they could extricate their um, local banks from their dollar problems. And that it, again, it's it didn't establish this correlation between selling tre- or foreigners selling treasuries and dollar shortage. It continued that history, which was already by then decades old. So, foreign, as you say, foreigners are not selling treasuries because they hate America or they think the Fed is printing money and the dollar is going to crash. They're doing it for essentially the opposite reason: that dollar shortage, inelasticity. And at that time, of course, we saw the dollar rising, which is another signal. So we all of these things together tell us dollar problem, dollar shortage that's becoming so bad, it actually shows up in a number of different ways, including FOMC transcripts with redacted amounts. And it shows up in the Treasury International Capital Report, which I am pulling up right now, a graph data that you pulled from that report. And one there's a big red circle on this graph, Jeff. Tell us both what the total buy there are two graphs here total buying of long-term domestic securities and then total private buying of long-term domestic securities why the difference and then what's that big red circle pointing to well first of all the total buying includes both private banks and overseas you know private entities as well as official and official is central banks and governments okay so we have total which includes both both buckets and what their activities and what the tick data shows you and what you're seeing here is essentially you know there's trillions of, of US dollar assets bought and there's trillions of US dollar assets sold in any given month but there's usually more of one than the other in in the build-up dollar as you can see here there's typically more buying than selling because there's more excess dollars outside the US that end up coming back into the US or what Ben Bernanke was forced to call a global savings glut before that idea ridiculously blew up in his face. It was the, it's this, the, there's more dollars outside the United States that end up being purchased in domestic assets or being, being used to purchase domestic assets. And as you can see, between 98 and 2007, that really got into overdrive. I mean, it just it went insane levels of, of foreigners purchasing, especially U.S. Treasuries, which is what triggered Ben Bernanke's global savings glut nonsense essentially because the euro dollar system went nuts itself so we have monetary expansion clearly indicated by what's going on in the net tick figures you want to go back up to the top one i'll explain 97 98 which is total you see how rare it was especially in this later period for there to be any month where there's more selling than buying and primarily u.s treasuries but not just u.s treasuries and in the case of the actual outright selling it usually is u.s treasuries so we're seeing is May 1998, we have the FOMC discussion where Peter Fisher, who was the open market manager, said banks are saying they're shutting the door on Japan. May 1998. From May 1998 until August and September, remember September 1998, that was LTCM's failure and a bunch of other. That's where the, the Asian financial crisis got to be its worst. So we see in the tick data where we have. Lots of net buying up until that point, except for that one month in early in, in 1997, where suddenly net buying across the entire world becomes net selling. And that net selling isn't, again, Japanese selling treasuries because they hate Bill Clinton or what's going on with Bill Clinton. It's because they're faced with a dollar shortage. And this is a consistent pattern 
that, 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 that doesn't just pertain to 1997-98. We also saw it in the 1960s, and not just one specific instance where the Japanese government was selling T-bills to, for, to, to uh, fill in a $200 million hole that, the, that these, these Japanese banks had in the euro dollar market from its earliest days in the 60s. We see it more consistently since, really since 2014, but even in specific episodes uh, from 2000, August 2007 forward. And Jeff, the, there's a line in your report here, so I hope the audience doesn't think I'm being rude. What point am I trying to make here? You, you wrote that in your paper. I'm not, I'm not being rude. The point is this big red arrow at the far right of the graph, Jeff. And it says May 2021, the latest data came in. And that line, well, it's on the wrong side of zero, Jeff. That's just on the wrong side of zero. But it's one of the, if you look, on, look at the entire chart, it's, it's one of the lowest in the history. Mm -hmm. So what you're seeing is reflation, dollar flood, Jay Powell, all this nonsense about too much cash, overabundance, all that kind of stuff. How the hell do we have such a big negative in tick when this tick data and what it indicates and what the implications are, are for the opposite of all those things? And remember, we don't care about Jay Powell's opinion about the domestic dollar system because that's, that's, that's looking at us one small slice of the overall whole. We want to know what's going on in the entire monetary system, because if there's a problem offshore, even if it hasn't shown up in Jay Powell's window yet, it, it, an offshore problem eventually will. And then, and unfortunately, this, this big negative in tick where we see selling of assets indicative of a dollar shortage has been corroborated and correlated with all number of other indications all across real-time markets and data that we've been talking about consistently since it happened. And more than that, though, as we're seeing recently, May 2021 keeps coming up in a lot of these places. We see, for example, in June, following this big, big warning, this big dollar warning in the tick data, it was in June where we saw global bond yields really start to, 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 to really start to fall. So, you know, again, going back to what you said in the earlier segment, we have a shadow money system that we can't directly observe. So we're trying to piece together not just a small number of you know, esoteric indications, but a wide survey of all of these things that, that see if we can't get a consistent picture. And what the, the picture that we're finding is that you know, it's, it's not the one we want. It's, it's not an overabundance of money. There's a problem here and a growing problem that we've seen way too many times before. Last week, I asked David Parkins, our illustrator, to draw a uh, seismograph and to label each of the little rumbles we've had with these monetary disturbances. But I asked him not to create, you know, some sort of apoplectic Hollywood movie 10.0 kind of uh, <laughs> explosion yet, because we're not there yet. And that's the point you make at the very end of your report. You say, it does not indicate that a crisis is right around the corner. Rather, it is yet another strong piece of evidence which strongly suggests the world is and has been heading down the wrong path. And then, Jeff, I imagine that you left and then thought about it and you came back and then you added at the very end again. <laughs> I think, you know, in some ways mentally that's true because you have to say again. But, you know, that's, I think that's the point we want to make here. Let's not go too far with this stuff. 
you know, we're not saying that we're, you know, it, it's August 2007 again, and the right over, you know, right across the horizon is going to be massive financial crisis or anything like that. What we're saying is we're seeing these piled ups of warnings that are indicative of a system going in the wrong way. And then if it continues to go the wrong way, we expect we'll see more, you know, more uh, clear warnings, deeper warnings, more serious warnings that will tell you that, that what we have now is a system that isn't necessarily in a critical state, but it is in a precarious state. You know, our, our perfect example last week of the scramble for collateral, for example, why didn't that lead to something more serious? And the reason was because we're not in a more serious or more weakened condition. It's in a fragile condition, but it's not in a crisis condition. And that's really what we're, we're focusing on now is, okay, we're seeing, it's like you're in a, you're in a building that, started, that looks like it's a little shaky. You can hear the creaks and you can hear the cracks and you maybe see a little you know, crack on the wall, but it isn't like the thing's gonna fall down tomorrow. We don't know that just yet. And there's time for somebody to come along and fix things before it does. So what we're, what we're saying here is that we have the predicate conditions for something worse, but we're not into that place yet. All of these bad warning signs are, are they're piling up and we're, yeah, we're moving in the wrong direction, but we're not too far down that road. My more, my preferred metaphor, the one you just did is a little bit more melodramatic and I'm thinking of uh, the China syndrome. And so I always like to think of it, yeah, nothing's wrong yet, but the pipes are rattling. You're in the nuclear power plant and the pipes are rattling funny and then the steam's coming out of one of the pipes. Anyways, that was a good movie. Did you ever see that one, Jeff? Yeah, I saw that one. <laughs> it was good. It was good. It was, I think the best part about it was that it was so well-timed. You know, yeah. I think it came out, what, a week or so after Three Mile Island. It was You couldn't have planned it better. Conspiracy. Did Hollywood make Three Mile Island happen? We're going to talk about it next. We're also going to talk about, in part three, that the National Bureau of Economic Research has pronounced that America went through its shortest recession ever last year. Well, we're going to tell you that maybe it really wasn't a recession at all, much like how 2008 may not have been a recession all at all either. And then to rope in the men to the show, no, the ladies. I guess I messed it up. Damn it. Oh, you were doing good. The ladies. Ah, <laughs> oh, damn it. All right, ladies and gentlemen. God, GDFFMF. <laughs> Uh, All right, ladies and gentlemen, the Asian financial crisis. Let's talk about it. The Asian financial crisis. I think you should go back and cut in yourself saying ladies and finish your thought because I want to know what the hell you were going with. All right, that. I'll start over. I'll start over then. No, don't start over. Just, you know, cut in. The, you were going to say to rope in the ladies. To rope in the ladies. The National, the National Bureau of Economic Research from America has pronounced that the corona recession only lasted two months, the shortest one ever. That means we're in recovery. That means we're on our way back. But Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Partners, and I are going to raise the very real possibility that it wasn't a recession in the same sense that the 2007 to 2009 downturn wasn't a recession either. But first, ladies and gentlemen, if we did have a sponsor, one of the potential sponsors could be the Financial Times, including specifically John Dizard, or is it Dizard? I don't know, because I'm confused, because on today's report, today's July 23rd 
column, he's got a lizard or a lizard. I'm not sure. It's Godzilla. And the reason why it's being sponsoring the show here is because it's called The Horror Scenario Lurking in the Plumbing of Finance, U.S. Treasury Bonds. And it starts out back when Hollywood was fully functional. Horror movies were reliably released around Halloween or sometimes whenever there was a Friday the 13th. This year, though, the horror movie in U.S. Treasuries, the mother of all contemporary markets, is being played out over the summer and early autumn. Where does this story go? Jeff, you might know a little bit. Yeah, first of all, it's Dizard. <laughs> I know it's... Lizard? This is Godzilla the Lizard? It is. It's Godzilla sorry, the Lizard. Mr. Absolutely. I'm sorry, true. Mr. Dizard. I always mess it up. Oh, go ahead. Well, did you say... You oh, said first of all... Was, is there a second of all? Should there be a second of all? No, I mean, because we, we, can we can't go. top the lizard, dizard, lizard, dizard discussion. I mean, that's that's just... Uh, it's cool. The Financial Times is talking about treasury trouble. Read it. Which, today. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's one of those things where you see, you know, I, I, we talk about this before and probably will into the future where it's a small sign of progress. You know, whereas before these kinds of topics were very rarely, if ever, spoken about, now we're seeing more and more interest in the mainstream about what's really going on because we've been shoveled a you know a spoonful, we've been spoon-fed all of this crap for so long, and it never seems to work out the way it's supposed to, right? Because the my, the mainstream media was monolithic just a couple years ago about how things were going to inflation, interest rates are going to go higher. And then, you know, it went the exact wrong, opposite way. And eventually some people are going to get tired of being spoon fed all that crap and say, maybe we need to take a look at what really goes on in some of these things. Because just even after a couple seconds of looking at them, you can see we're missing a big part of the equation or it's, it's just it's, it doesn't line up with what we're being told. And when we talk about the Treasury market collateral repo and all these things, going back to September of 2019, suddenly people were reminded about, hey, what repo? I've heard that before, and it seems to be very important. What's going on in repo? And uh, when you start, as I said, you, all, it does, all it takes is just a tiny bit of research. And what you find is there's a hell of a lot more going on here than I was ever, ever told. Well, one institution that we look to for advice for telling us what's happening is the National Bureau of Economic Research. And just the other day, they said the recession was only two months long. And in an article that was titled, The Contraction is Over, which means the hard part only begins, you posted that on the 21st of July at Alhambra Partners. And Jeff, you come to the point that maybe it wasn't even a recession. Do you want to tell us a little or anything about the NBER, about what they do? Yeah, I'm not really sure how they became the official declarer of recession. I mean, it's, it's sort of like, you know, the uh, medieval court between, uh, you know, around whatever medieval king, where they hand out various titles for that sound like, you know, the keeper of the horse or something like that. I mean, the official declarer or the official arbiter of the business cycle. It sounds like a, you know, it, it's a weird kind of a title, but, and I don't know where the hell these people got it from other than the fact that the NBER is sort of a loose amalgamation of quote unquote top economists. So, you know, it, it stands to reason the public would say, we don't really know much about the economy and how it really works. So maybe these quote unquote economists know what they're talking about. So if they say we're in a recession, who is to argue with them, right? And so if they say the recession's over, 
who is to argue with them? And so that's kind of how it, how they they sort of just absorb this role and say, okay, we're the ones who tell you if we're in a recession or not. And that's yeah. sort of what they've done. Yeah, they're self-appointed. And as you said, it's the creme de la creme of economists. I'm not going to read out all the names, but we've got Christina Romer, David Romer, Ben Bernanke used to be here, Martin Feldstein. And this Feldstein, goes... Yep. And this goes all the way back to 1978. So I think people might have the sense that this was around quite a big time, a long time. And in contemporary times, they would date the recessions. But no, this only started in 1978. It's the Business Cycle Dating Committee. Everyone is from Stanford or MIT or Berkeley or Harvard or Princeton. So I think that's, you know, they're just yeah, self-appointed. Yeah, the uh, saltwater economists. There's and one you know, from Chicago. In some ways, it's kind yeah. of ridiculous, too, because it's not like they say we're in a recession or we're going to be in a recession next month. We, we're, we're telling you there's a recession coming or the recovery's here. Recession's over as, it's, as it gets to the bottom. Typically, these people wait, as they did now, an entire year to tell you, oh, by the way, there was a recession that began a year ago, as they did in 2008. I mean, that, that one was the one that really, I mean, that, that should have gotten a lot more uh, attention and focus because they didn't say the great quote unquote recession began until December of 2008, when everybody around the world said, uh, no, duh. I remember Thank that. you for telling us this because we need that. you to tell us that we're in a recession right now. And that, and then also, I mean, that's not just a trivial thing. And we're not, we're, you know, it's not, this is not just a cheap shot at the NBER because at that time, you know, they should have said we were in recession earlier because in the middle of 2008 in particular, we've talked about this before, especially with the Federal Reserve, there was the idea that the U.S. economy would somehow avoid a recession entirely due to the very good work of one Ben Bernanke and Bill Dudley, his sidekick, which when we just spent a lot of time talking about, Bill Dudley and the rest of them have no idea what the hell they're talking about. And that kind of goes to why the NBR had to wait until December of 2008 to declare the Great Recession a recession. These people really don't know what they're talking about. They kind of have an idea where, hey, it's December 2008, the world kind of falling apart. Yes, we might have been in a recession. Thank you. Thank you. We really needed that. At the same so, time. No, no go, go ahead. ahead, sir. No, I was just going to say, so if, if they have that trouble with that much trouble declaring this is a recession, we need we need a Lehman Brothers and AIG and, you know, hundreds of thousands of job losses to tell you that there was a recession. That everybody already knows is, is going on. What about their prowess for saying we're in a recovery? That's right. That's we're going deeper. It's not like we're going to say, well, actually, it lasted four months or three months or something. And then, Jeff, you say in here, it's hard to argue with the logic and the reasons given by almost every account. The economy went straight down, beginning right at the last edge of last February, but truly throughout March and extending all the way into April. Beginning in May, however, the powers of reopening, the economy was back on the mend. So Jeff, we're not going to be saying, uh, yeah, it was three months, four months, five months, we're going to go deeper, we're going to talk about recovery as to whether it even occurred. And that's where you you ask the next question. Well, there's this issue about this whole thing, actually, if, if it had been a recession at all. So what, what are you, where do we go from here, Jeff? Well, we're, let's talk about the business cycle. What mm -hmm. is a business cycle? 
And that's really the, from the NBER standpoint, what they're saying is all we do is we declare sections of a business cycle. We're not telling you whether or not the business cycle has disappeared because we believe or we presume and assume that it hasn't. So what they're saying is that the economy is, has two states. It's a binary choice for them. Either it's in recession or it's in recovery. Those are the only two options that the MBER has. So the, the, more, more important, the more important discussion and debate is about whether or not that's the right framework to analyze what's going on. Because if we don't have normal business cycles, then there are other options besides recession and recovery. But from the perspective of the MBR, what they, you know, to give them a little slack here, what they're saying is, in their the recent declaration is, that the recession part, the contraction part is over. And what they're not saying is that, you know, everything is fine and dandy now. What they're saying is that we're on the path to potential recovery, and it could be a long, slow process. And our official declaration, all it really says, if we're really getting technical about it is, if things go wrong and we go back into a recession, if we go into another contraction, that it's another contraction. It's not the same one. And again, it's okay. Thanks. Thanks, genius. What's, <laughs> what's the point of this, right? It's, it's, it's sort of like, okay, this is, but you know, this is the academic, the academic way of viewing the economy, really that there's this idea that there's only two states. We're either in recession or recovery. It's one or the other. So if we're out of recession, we must be in recovery. Even if technically the NBR would say, well, it's not exactly what we said, but it is. See, they have a very nice FAQ, Business Cycle Dating Procedure, and they have one here that says, what is a recession? What is an expansion? To your point, there are two states. And they say an expansion is a period when the economy is not in recession. And then here's a key line, Jeff. Expansion is the normal state of the economy. As we often say, we think if it goes below zero, that's bad. That's a contraction. No, it's more bad. It's worse. Uh, if it's the normal state to be an expansion, then if we fall below trend, that's also bad. And it's Jeff, stay below you... trend, right? It's the nonlinear contraction. Yes. Even they... though GDP is growing, it's growing at an insufficient rate. Therefore, it is a contraction. Even if it you doesn't you don't see a negative sign on the GDP report, it's not growing fast enough, which creates all these other problems. And the example I always give is about uh, microchips and processors and how they're supposed to double in processing power every eighteen months or so. And if you go back in time, we're still on that trend. But if we were still growing the processing power, but nowhere near doubling. Are we fine? Is it okay? No, we're way off trend. It's a problem, but it's above zero. Same thing with the economy. If we are below trend, but above zero, it's still a problem, especially for a sustained period of time. Yeah, and the, the NBR says that's recovery when we know that recovery, it's not. Exactly. It's, it's, there's more diverse options here than just one or the other. And where does that, where does that presumption come from? It comes from a specific time period in modern history between World War II and 2007. Because during that period, it really seemed like that's only to, the only two options, not just the US economy, but many developed economies around the world. In fact, I think all of the developed economies around the world followed that same pattern. It was either recession or recovery. And there was nothing other, nothing other between that. But immediately you gotta ask yourself, okay, but what was it that made that period in history? Was it that period in history representative of all history going forward? 
or maybe was that a unique period in history where that 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 kind of um that kind of pattern dominated because of specific factors that may no longer apply and what economists say is no we just assume that this is the way it's always going to be when that's you're already you're, that's a just a dangerous assumption because you know the world doesn't follow such rules and think about what it was before the world war 2 um, these non-recovery recoveries were fairly common. So what you know, what was it that explains how we got into this different kind of recession pattern versus what it had been before, and why do we believe that that would be permanent? And that's where you get into some of the more trivial stuff and things that will kind of blow your mind. Bef as you said, before World War II, this was accepted. And here I've got a book, Anatomy of a Bear, by uh, Mr. Russell Napier. And what did he do? He went back to uh, the four great bottoms of the U.S. stock market, and he read newspapers around that bottom to try to get a sense. Can you figure out what were people thinking? What were the conditions? How would you know that this is the bottom? And so he went back to 1921, 1932, 64, 68, forgive me, 82. Anyways, and in this book, he pulls the quotes from the Wall Street Journal at the time. And Jeff, here, I'm reading July 27th, 1921. They had no problem, no problem using the D word. When the crops are on their way to the market and when certain important financing is completed, then perhaps the public will begin to recognize that improvement has begun and that depression is ending. And Jeff, you know what I was finding remarkable when I was reading this book? They use that D word all the time. They're so profane. Assurance is now doubly sure. This is August 1st. 1921, that we have reached the bottom of the business depression. Continuing on, October 2nd, the trough of the business depression has very clearly passed. October 5th, 1921, it is well to say that there is nothing in our domestic situation nor in the international situation that can sustain a pessimistic outlook or a despondent view that the world has sunk into permanent depression. October 5th, 1921 Wall Street Journal from observations I am firmly convinced that the bottom of business depression has been reached over and over they're not afraid to use it of course in the 1930s no problem as well but now that word isn't even considered in our present circumstances and then I think you know economists would say you know what they would argue is that it's sort of a semantical argument but it's not there's there's a legitimate basis here for questioning these assumptions, which is, you know, Milton Friedman's plucking model, I think, described it best, even though, you know, most economists wouldn't say they use it, but it's conceptually, I think it, it really, really defines what we're talking about here, which is that recession does not alter the long run trajectory of the economy. It is merely a temporary, very short temporary deviation from that permanent trend. And what we saw after 2008 was not that. Not that at all. And I mean, completely different, something entirely new that we hadn't seen since the 1930s. And just looking at this chart, you're thinking, the last time we saw something like this was the 1930s. So maybe that assumption that the recession recovery dynamic that describes, described by the MBR, maybe that was just a narrow, unique case in history. And we should consider that there are other possible alternatives, especially when we start to re start to investigate 
what is it that economists assume happened during that 1940 to 19 or 1940 to 2007 window? What accounts for this idea that 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 um, economic potential is never disturbed by contraction? Or as they, you know, what they, the, there's no unit roots possible. We we don't allow permanent shocks because it was never in the post-war period. And what they come up with is that we don't really know. They don't really know why. There's all the, you know, there's lots of different theories. Among them is that central banks have become really good at their job, which is obviously not what happened in 2008. So the very idea that there's only recession and recovery. I mean, you're staring at evidence that that can't be true. I've pulled up a graph, your graph from the article we were discussing, and it shows real GDP in the United States of America going back to 2005. But you've got a nice big blue dash line, Jeff, that says this was the estimate by the CBO. What is that? Congressional Budget Office. Right. And before so January this, 2007, they looked ahead 10 years and said, yeah. What is the economic potential that we don't believe will ever be deviated from? So even if we have a recession, what we expect is that GDP will decline and then go right back to that dotted line, which is recovery. So defining our terms even more, recession is the downward trend away from the dotted line. Recovery is re, re, uh, reattaching to the dotted line. But we and didn't get that. No, this is a damning chart, Jeff, but even more damning and truly... I don't know, despicable, heartbreaking. To me, is it's the corrupt. next chart corrupt. Yeah. Look, to at me, this, it's, it's, ladies a, it's and a gentlemen. measure of corruption. I don't mean corruption in the fact that they're stealing money. It's, it's intellectual corruption. What are, we, what what are we showing? Here is the CBO said, well, we expect recovery in 2007. Well, you know, then we go fast forward to 2011 when re GDP and output and economic growth were not seemingly going in the recovery fashion. So they started to think, well, maybe there's something wrong with the economy. So maybe it was that whatever happened lowered economic potential. And so over the decade afterward, as, as economic growth did not boom, as the economy did not recover ever, what economists did was said, well, it must be that the economy itself is broken. Americans are too lazy. They won't go back to work. They won't go back to school. They're retiring. Any number of things to avoid having to say, we screwed up big here. And we, I don't just mean the NBER not admitting that this wasn't a recovery, but more so look at when all of this stuff started to happen. Where was that big deviation? in 2007 and 2008. What happened in 2007 and 2008 that could possibly explain all this? Maybe a massive global monetary crisis that's never been fixed. And so by writing down potential, they're really violating their own presumptions to begin with and doing so in a very, as you said, very insidious way to avoid having to say, we screwed this up in every possible way fashion not only that we're hiding the results so that we can say the oh this is recovery look gdp is matching its potential what they don't tell you is that they wrote down that potential on the order of something like six five and six trillion dollars a year five and six trillion dollars a year i submit to the audience here would have would have forestalled a lot of the political and social consequences that we see around them. Imagine five trillion more in GDP a year. 
what that would have done. Millennials no longer stuck in their parents' base. I mean, complaining about student loan debt. The amount of opportunity and economic uh, sufficiency in that $5 trillion we don't even know is missing is so mind-bogglingly huge that it's, it's, it's almost incomprehensible that it's, a, it's, it's actually happened. <sighs> recession or recovery, right? That's the only two options we have. And if, if we don't have a recovery, then we'll just, we'll just create one out of thin air. At the end of their FAQ, the NBER does address this topic, and I commend them for that question. Does the committee identify depressions as well as recessions in its chronology? Answer, the NBER does not separately identify depressions in its business cycle chronology. The term depression is often used to refer to a particularly severe period of economic weakness, Weakness, not contraction. No, this exactly. is weakness. It doesn't weakness. And I think that's where you want to go with this, right, Emil? Let's yeah. define another term here. Recession and recovery. I agree a recovery is, is what they think it is, which is where we have a, we have a contraction, and then the economy within a short, real, relatively short period of time or a relatively reasonable period of time, let's call it that, in a reasonable period of time goes back to an unaltered trend or potential. That is a recovery. They agree. The NBER, the more common use in term, they're referring to depression again, also encompasses the time until economic activity has returned to normal levels. Not the level where it was, but just the graph we were looking at. The normal levels is up because economic expansion is positive usually. So they're saying Depression is economic weakness for a prolonged yeah, period until we return to normal levels. That dash blue line. What we need to say in our definition is that, look, if you have to reduce economic potential so that you can avoid admitting what the NBR just said, that is a definitive signal that, that, that this is wrong. It was never recovery. What the NBR is, or what economists would argue is that the economy after 2007, 2008 recovered because it's back to its potential. Now, it, it took it till 2017 and 18 to do it, but it did. Yeah. When No, if you have to reduce potential that severely just to avoid having to, having to just to preserve this recession recovery binary, no, there's, there must be other options available. And the other option is that we experienced a permanent shock, which clearly correlates, and not just in this GDP versus potential data, but then, I mean, just think about things like the bond market. It all correlates to a single cause and effect, which is monetary system global euro dollars. I like referring to it as the silent depression, not because the people in the government offices don't say anything. I understand why they wouldn't, because they promise, as we've discussed before, the professional economists in positions of power over the public servants, they promise we would never let this happen again. Bernanke, you know, we're not going to let a depression happen again. But it's silent because the media doesn't bring it up. And Jeff, it's just, I mean, it's the story of all stories, isn't it? If, not just what you said. I mean, what you said is absolutely true. Ben yes. Bernanke said we'd never let it happen again. But also think about the uh, the accolades that he's earned since it did happen what he said was that we prevented a depression from, or de we prevented the great recession from becoming something worse well, what would something worse than the great recession be the great recession was a temporary contraction 
worse than a temporary contraction is we come out the other side with something very, very different than we went into it with. So his whole reputation has been built on the idea that we prevented, quote unquote, going into a depression when by the NBER's own definitions, that's exactly what has taken place since then. And bringing this forward to 2020, 2021, what are we looking at now? We're looking at the potential, especially after yesterday's GDP report that didn't accelerate as planned, of repeating a permanent shock. And what does that mean? Well, we'll probably have to save that for a future episode. But we already have an idea, as we've been talking about in the labor market, with the participation rate falling yet again for, oh, it must be a labor shortage. It must be, I mean, any number of excuses that are being written out. And I'd wager that over time, when we look at the CBOE potential numbers, they're probably going to be doing a lot of downgrading and, and revising lower over the years of head to avoid having to say that there's anything that there's other possibilities besides recovery. In 1969, Murray Rothbard, I like reusing this quote often, said that economists, the best way to avoid a depression is to simply write it out of existence. <laughs> quote, yeah. After the disaster of 1929, economists and politicians resolved that this must never happen again. The easiest way of succeeding at this resolve was simply to define depressions out of existence. Jeff, the Financial Times, November 2019. Latin America faces a second lost decade. The Economist, December 14, 2019. Latin America's second lost decade is not as bad as the first. Foreign Affairs, Latin America's lost decades. That's January and February 2021. Here we go to The Economist again. They're talking about Brazil. It's from June 5th of this year. The result was Brazil's worst ever recession. The D word, Jeff, you dare not say it. It's true. And, you know, it's true. I've, I'm advised all the time not to use that word because it, preve it, it, it prevents honest discussion and analysis from people who don't accept it, who believe that they're the, the mainstream NBR view that their depressions are impossible. And so by using, even using the word, you're sort of turning off a large portion of the population who don't want to even consider these possibilities because for various reasons. And it's funny you bring up the Latin America's lost decade. Maybe that's another way of saying depression, right? That's the point. Yeah, exactly. Secular yeah, we stagnation, can admit it for Latin America, Japan, normal. whatever. No, they can't even admit it for Latin America. They call it a lost decade. They call it a new normal, a secular stagnation. Right. They can't even admit it, even though it's a decade. What is but that? Going back to what we said before, they can say these things and come up with all their euphemisms they want after the fact when we were writing in 2013 and 2014 that this was coming. I, t I wrote in late 2013 that Brazil was toast before anybody even before even the real real crisis hit Brazil. I told you that what they were doing was going to lead to the worst economic. Brazil was toast. In fact, I think that was the title of my article. It, that's the kind of the point we're trying to make here. They don't have any useful information ahead of time or in arrears because they're looking at everything in the exact wrong way. It's another continuation of the intellectual corruption that starts with what we talked about in the early segments, which is we're not supposed to even consider the monetary system as a, as a, as a useful factor in analysis at all when everything, and I mean everything around the world, continues to point at only 
the monetary system that explains what's actually going on. And that includes the idea that there's more than just recession or recovery. As you pointed out, we live in a nonlinear world. Yes, GDP is going up, but if it's not going up at a fast rate, that is still contraction. And here we are in 2021, still have never recovered from 2008. That's it's, it's just and I think it's too much for many people to just absorb and, and understand and, and accept without being beaten over the head with it. Well, I'm, I will gladly just point them to the NBER, which says it themselves. It's a period of ec- weak economic growth or expansion and for until we get back to normal. That sounds that's the, what I, mean, I was, Is it even uh, expansion? Yes, GDP no, is didn't. up in absolute. Yeah, no. Is that even an expansion though? You know, it's, and that's, that's part, you know, we have, we use these imprecise terms, recession, recovery, that we kind of use them loosely for any number of things. Uh, let's see. A term depression is often used to refer to a particularly severe period of economic weakness. Bingo. Thank you. Jeff, if so I was the to... weasel word severe, <laughs> is that what they well, would say? Well, I, it's, oh, it's weakness no. and it's prolonged, but is it severe enough? I mean, Oh, good point. Yeah, I didn't catch yeah, so, that. So I mean, that's you know, to to what good, our just yeah, what's good. germane to our discussion here is that doesn't actually matter. Severe, yeah, I would argue that this is obviously severe because of what we're seeing time. not just in markets but all over the world and time. Yes, time, Yeah, I mean, we're talking about more than a decade. Lost decades is not a good thing. I'm going to ask David Parkins, our illustrator, to do something with frying pan and fire. So like the NBR is saying, hey, we're out of the fi- frying pan. That's, Jeff? That's, a, that's a good analogy, right? That's why you know, the title of this article was, you know, the hard part begins. And the hard part is, okay, we can all agree there was a contraction, right? That was easy. The entire world knew there was a contraction, just like we didn't need the NBR to tell us there was a contraction in 2008. We knew it. But the hard part is we don't know, and I'm talking about the public in general, we don't know what follows it. We're told to assume it's a recovery, but we can't really get our heads. I mean, it's not easy for everyone to say this is a recovery. And that itself is a sign because it's been a long time now, but you go back to periods of legitimate economic growth. If you're old enough and remember what the economy was like, it was like a recession. Everybody knew it was a rec- everybody knew it was a legitimate expansion. There was no debate. There no was no argument. It was unambiguous, and so that we're even discussing it as a possibility is already is we're, we're in the wrong we're in the wrong position to begin with. And it's really, are we taught what? This is the hard part. We have to get people to realize that. Yeah, we can call it recovery because it's no longer a recession, but that doesn't mean it's an actual recovery. There are other options, and really, it doesn't take long to find them because we just went through the same thing. Talk to you again next week, Jeff. All right, take care, Emil.
Monet. Won't, won't, won't. 